Welcome to a special presentation of Nebraska Farmcast, a podcast with essential information for essential decisions from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. The Nebraska Extension Farm and Ranch Management Team in the Department of Agricultural Economics is dedicated to providing timely news, analysis, decision tools, and publications for Nebraska agricultural decision makers. Each week, our team brings you essential information for your essential decisions in live webinars covering a diverse array of farm and ranch management topics presented by experts from the university, from across the state, and from around the country. This series of podcasts offers audio from these webinars so you can learn on the go. To find a complete archive of all webinars, register for upcoming sessions, and discover more resources, visit the Farm and Ranch Management website at farm.unl.edu. I'm Ryan Evans with the Department of Agricultural Economics at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, wanting to welcome you to our weekly webinar series today. Today's topic is one that's important for landowners, operators, and private sector professionals alike. The Nebraska Farm Real Estate Report is issued every year by the Department of Agricultural Economics based on the input of an expert panel comprising members engaged in agricultural land and rental markets throughout Nebraska. For the first time since 2014, the average value of ag land in the state saw an increase of around 3%. To walk us through the report's findings, economic factors to consider, and how the information might be applied in lease agreements and more, we're joined today by one of the report's co-authors, Jim Jansen. Since 2014, Jim has held the extension position of agricultural economist for the northeast part of the state, working in the Department of Agricultural Economics out of the Haskell Ag Lab near Concord. He obtained his bachelor's in ag econ from South Dakota State, followed by master's in both agricultural economics and agronomy and crop science from UNL. So right now I'll hand it off to you, Jim. All right, very good. Switch over here. All right, thanks for having me, Ryan. Uh, for those of you joining us today, I appreciate you for getting on. I know this, this last four months have been kind of a shakeup from normal business, as well as a lot of stress placed on operators across the state. So we hope to kind of provide an overview of what we did in the real estate survey, uh, some brief information on where trends and the market value of land is currently in the state of Nebraska, according to our survey work, and then follow that up with rental rates. And then to pull everything together today, we always have annually a special feature section that takes a closer look at a particular issue of interest. And this year we took a closer look at how are leases designed in Nebraska in 2019 and what influence did all the flooding or excessive moisture that led to an exceptional number of prevent plan acres across the state of Nebraska? How did that play into everything? So I'll be the final portion of the presentation. Uh, Jeff Stokes is our endowed chair of agricultural finance. He uh, has been with us for several years now, and uh, he's also the co-author. If you have any questions, we'd ask that you'd reach out to me via email or phone number or uh, if you'd like to visit one-on-one -on -one and there's a certain time that only works during the day for you, let me know and I'm fairly flexible. I should be able to accommodate just about anything. Okay, um, the legal folks at UNL asked me to talk about this briefly. I'll just spend a second here. The information we're providing today was based on survey opinions. The survey opinions were collected 
Um, as we note in the bottom portion of the slide, they were collected uh, prior to some of the COVID-19 events. That being said, uh, there are a fair number of people in this state that maybe might have negotiated their rental rates a little bit differently if they had known what was in store for everyone. So that's why we're encouraging people if, when it comes to your farm real estate needs, be willing, whether a landlord or a tenant, to provide some flexibility to account for this unprecedented level of time in terms of uncertainty and uh, there's a lot of prices for the major commodities or livestock classes that we raise across the state that many folks maybe hadn't been expecting. So once again, um, information side of survey work, it's the best estimates we can currently produce. And that being said, uh, let's go ahead and get started. Uh, brief overview on the real estate survey. If you'd like to look at the complete report that in addition to the information I'm going to be talking about today, there is additional information on things related to historic land values, cash rental rates, rates of return, uh, some various USDA information on number of farms. All of that is contained in the appendix of the report. But uh, each year we survey land industry professionals includes agricultural bankers, professional farm and ranch management companies, as well as agricultural appraisers. Agricultural appraisers are those folks that for a living, they put a value on the asset uh, of interest. So from their results, uh, from their information, we summarize results twice each year. The preliminary estimates come out in March. The preliminary estimates have additional details beyond uh, I should say the preliminary results have details related to land values as well as cash rental rates and cash rental rates in early March is kind of a key piece of information a lot of folks are looking for. Final report has additional details on actual sales, things like who's buying land, who's selling land, how are land purchases being financed, cash, mortgage, contract for deed, things of that nature can be found from the sample set of sales that were reported to us. Currently, if you want to find a copy of the real estate report, you can do a simple uh, web search, uh, look for the term Nebraska Farm Real Estate Report, you should be able to find it that way. Or the other option is go to the website agecon.unl.edu backslash real estate. Down there we have our current year's report, uh, digital commons with the University of Nebraska. I think we have just about every report up there now that's been digitized. So if you have any questions, need anything, uh, let us know what we can do to help you out. So a little bit of overview on how we summarize the information. Stay in Nebraska, we take all 93 counties and divide them into eight different areas. These eight areas are referred, as, referred to as statistical districts. Uh, some folks refer to them as crop reporting districts. The main thing to be known is that since the inception of the report, the state has always been divided in this manner. Uh, today, where the uh, University of Nebraska-Lincoln is based in Lancaster County, so that would be in the East District. You might note there are folks that own properties just across the county line from, say, Saline County or vice versa. Sometimes you might have a property that might follow the trends of the Southeast or the East a little bit more or less, even if it is technically inside of one district or the other. But the thing that makes Nebraska unique is we have about 45 million acres of agricultural land. About half the state is either dry land or irrigated cropland. 
And the remainder of the state is either in hayland or more importantly for a lot of the cow-calf folks, uh, raising land. So that epicenter of combining these two things really distinguishes us as, uh, us as a beef state because we have a very robust cow-calf as well as a livestock feeding industry. So taking all these things into account, coupled with the fact we have more irrigated cropland in this state, around eight and a half million acres. Uh, half, I should probably look into the more recent census of ag figures, but around eight and a half million, which is the most number of irrigated acres anywhere in the state of Nebraska, or anywhere in the United States. So that being said, there's a lot of unique features that sets our state apart from other regions of uh, the United States, or even other countries that produce ag goods. So first part today, land values. A few things to note that I want to point out. Once again, the survey was conducted starting in the middle of January through the middle of March. There are a few surveys that came in after that, but uh, for the majority of the responses that came in, they came in prior to many of the COVID-19 events and the events that transpired in our commodity markets. When we estimated the market value of land as of February 1st, 2020 compared to February 1st, 2019, we estimated the market value of land in Nebraska that if you note in the bottom left-hand corner of the state, uh, just, just to the left of the southwest corner of the state, uh, we estimated the market value at $2,725 an acre or up approximately 3% compared to the prior year. That being said, uh, from 2014 until 2019, we've seen a decline of about 20%. So I'm not uh, trying to indicate that this is a sharp correction, but we're seeing a period when we estimated the market value that the market value of land was either steady to slightly higher across the majority of the state, with some areas noting just a very small increase or even a slight decline. When you see a very small increase of 1% plus or minus, it basically says the market's kind of unchanged or we're not seeing a lot of movement. Some of the more robust strength we've seen was in the eastern part of the state, which historically uh, the eastern third tends to follow a little bit closer and the western two thirds tends to follow a little bit different path from the eastern part. It has to do with rainfall, soil type, presence of irrigation, wide variety of things. And the central district kind of follows the eastern district to an extent as well. Uh, Taking the historical land value that we have estimated since 1978 here at the University of Nebraska based on expert opinions and charting it, so it starts on the left hand at 1978 to the right hand of 2020, that's the blue land, it's referred to as Nebraska all land ag land value, so if you take into account all the different types of land we estimate, and uh, if you put them together, we would estimate that uh, Nebraska farmland values starting kind of in the late 1990s, early 2000s, went through an exceptional period of growth, followed by a period of decline of about 20%, for the current year up about 3%. The other side of the puzzle, uh, what is land worth? We had a, uh, many folks ask me, what is our land worth? Well, there's basically two things. One, the earning potential of your asset. Uh, land uh, experienced an exceptional period Starting in the late 2000s, coupled with the 2012 drought, we set some of the highest real prices we've seen in recent history for the value of land across, um, for the value of the commodities produced on our land, whether corn, soybeans, or even livestock. 
Since then, things have declined some. And the challenges faced by many uh, agricultural producers when it comes to cash flowing a budget relates to the value of what we're producing. And I think uh, we see a fairly sharp decline and this is a marketing year average price of corn in Nebraska. And I believe this was a marketing year price average I took, um, I wanna say in May or June, which compared to the marketing year price average estimates of March is down, down maybe 20, 30, 40 cents, depending on your terminal and your basis levels. With that being said, uh, many landowners are facing challenges when it comes to uh, property taxes. Uh, one phenomenon that people have expressed to me over this period of time when we've seen declining land values was how come or how can my property taxes continue to increase if the market value of land is declining? The thing to note, there's two different things there. When we talk about the market value of an asset, we ask the question, if we had a willing buyer, willing seller, uh, property or the car or whatever asset you had that's being sold that it wasn't being sold to to an undue burden. Um, you know, somebody going broke or someone having to sell an asset because of divorce or something. If that's the case, when we look at um, the market value, it's at a point in time. We estimate the market value as of February 1, 2020 compared to February 1st, 2019. In the state of Nebraska, which if you're joining us from another state today, every state in the union has slightly different laws and some are significantly different than Nebraska when it comes to our neighboring ag states, Iowa, South Dakota, Minnesota, Kansas, Missouri. Uh, when it comes to the assessed value of land in Nebraska, it's based off a three-year median ag land value. And what I mean by that is each fall, County assessors across the state are gonna look back over the last three years of sales. Split your county up depending on how big it is. Uh, there's different ways of doing it, but the main thing is, is they look at, you know, say if you're in the Northern part of the county, they might look at all irrigated cropland sales over the last three years. Well, when you look back across time, even if we're on the downhill slide here, we still may be pulling from a period of time where land values are considerably higher than maybe where they were last year. And who knows, maybe land values might continue to be lower uh, coming into next year if the COVID keeps pulling down the value of a lot of the commodities we produce. So the thing I'm gonna emphasize here is the assessed value is based off a three-year median Eglin value to determine what the assessment should be. And remember, median is if you look over the last three years, median will is not necessarily the average, but think of it as the number in the middle related to all the numbers that you had brought in. Uh, one other thing I wanted to know, why or how can land values, machinery prices, home prices, how can all these things maintain the level of values that they have? Uh, that being said, uh, it relates to what does it cost to finance a purchase? An example, if you're in the market to buy, go buy a different car or a new car, and you've got a set budget of so many hundred a month to dedicate towards that loan. Can you afford to pay more or less for that asset if you are having to pay, say, 0.9 versus 9% interest? Well, if it's an even payment for a set period of time, then you're going to have a set budget of so much a month. 
you probably can afford, if you're looking at the percent on the right-hand side of this chart, you can probably afford to pay more when you have a lower interest rate on that loan that you intend to acquire. So that being said, uh, we look and I acknowledge these are not the interest rates that land loans are currently getting, but the 10-year treasury yield rate, uh, that is a indication of long-term debt. You know, what direction is long-term debt loans going in, home loans, land loans, whatever it might be. At the time when I put this slide together, the 10-year treasuries were yielding, give or take around 1%. Every year I do this, I keep saying, you know, I can't go any lower. Well, the one thing that has infused stability into some of the asset values, or at least it has not expedited the decline to, to a decline that would be even further than what we might've anticipated could have happened, is money is still fairly inexpensive and alternative forms of investment, the rate of return on them may not be the highest. So earning potential of land coupled with interest rates are two of the driving factors in our state that lead to changes in land values. And once again, I can't emphasize enough, we are estimating the market value in our report. Many folks that when it comes to a farm transition, they might get an appraisal done and estimate the market value of, the, uh, of an asset at the time of someone's passing or say the day after it, because they have to put a value to establish the basis on the property for transition. Assessments, once again, are based off a three-year period. It's obviously a period of time uh, that uh, may not necessarily completely reflect what the current market is doing, but it, they're trying to take a look at what what, what, what would you assess the value to be at? And this is obviously a point that is very, um, a lot of discussions are going on on what happened to real estate uh, values related to taxation. And it's something that we look forward to at the state legislature for possible reform. And I can't emphasize enough, stay, um, stay in tune with reading different things. The one thing that I wanted to point out, the Omaha World Herald did an article, and this is a little dated, it's going back two years or so now. But once again, assessments on ag land are based off a three-year period. And if, they, if you're looking at the bottom axis here of the, of the chart, you'll see this is for a historical period of time from back from 2012 to 2018. And ag land is based off a three-year period for assessments, and you see there was a period when there was an exceptional period of time when assessments went up, and they have since declined slightly. And I think if you put another year on here, you might see it's down just a little bit more. But based on how the mechanics, you got it. When you look at an issue, you got to look at the mechanics of how, how, what's going on. How, how are the laws and statutes guiding us? And this is one reason we've seen assessments go so high, and we're not seeing them come back down quite as fast because. We're not seeing the market value of land drop quite as fast. Uh, people always ask the question, why is there so much concern on property taxes if, you don't, if you're not a native a rural individ, individual or someone that necessarily owns ag land? Uh, Nebraska Farm Bureau did an article uh, just a few days ago, in fact, where they took a look at changes and the property taxes levied on ag land over roughly a one decade period. And on the bottom there, you see the percent change from less than 50% to 50 to 100, 150. And then you even see some from 150 to 
The main take home on this is there's a lot of areas in the state that have seen substantial changes in the property taxes levied. And that's why there's a lot of concern voiced across the entire state. And uh, once again, stay informed, read the news articles. Some folks viewing us today on this webinar may be um, integrated into some of these uh, stakeholder organizations. So this is my last topic on property taxes. It's not a property tax talk. I think it's just important to understand the basics of what the difference is between the market value versus what assessments that are guided by the state of Nebraska law might be and to put some visuals to, you know, what is happening. Uh, what has happened is we're in front of you here over the last decade. So there's a lot of concern and a lot of interest being voiced on this particular matter. Okay, so getting back on topic a little bit more. Uh, if you have interests, if you have different types of land that you're trying to just get a grasp on, what might my property be worth? These aren't exact numbers because they're for a big geographical area, but they can get you in the ballpark in terms of estimates. Are you talking 1,500 to 4,500? What's the difference? And we see there's quite a difference across the state of Nebraska where we have values in four, five, six thousand on the eastern part of the state versus six, 1500 or so in the western part. Uh, things to note here, this is for dry land cropland with hot irrigation potential. We also estimate a value for dry land cropland with irrigation potential. The difference between the two land classes is dry land cropland does not have, um, without irrigation potential, does not either have the water or water regulations in the area that appropriations that guide the use of water for uh, intensive irrigation purposes does, do not allow for future development at this time. So that's the main difference, but we're seeing there's quite a difference across the state when it comes to some of these. Uh, grazing land, you've seen that grazing land in the state of Nebraska was up slightly. When it comes to that, we notice that uh, there's some differences across the state of Nebraska. Um, up slightly, it just depends where you're at. Uh, the big thing on grazing land, there are certain areas of state, especially in the eastern portion of the state, where, um, and I just recognized on that last slide, I may need to take a double look at that, but uh, I believe these numbers are correct on this slide. And when it comes to grazing land, eastern part of the state, we see there's certain areas that don't have as much grazing land compared to the western part. So some of the issues or some of the interests expressed to us and why we're seeing higher real estate values they relate to things such as um, limited supply when it comes to the availability of sales. Uh, also, demand is still strong. Uh, people are still looking to buy. Uh, people are taking, looking to take advantage of lower interest rates at this period of time. Things of that nature. Center pivot irrigated cropland is our highest priced land value in the state of Nebraska. When it comes to center pivot irrigated cropland, once again, this is February 1, 2020 compared to February 1, 2019, and I need to fix that one there too, I missed that one. Uh, the things to note here, the estimated market value of land is compared, to, uh, there's a very strong uh, presence of having a higher real estate values on the eastern part compared to the western two-thirds. When it comes to the western two-thirds, what differences are there with respect to um, 
things like how are the real estate values associated with the availability of water, uh, things of that nature. So we noted in certain areas that water has some challenges and then in other areas we're a little bit better. Uh, other factors influencing farm real estate values across Nebraska, some of the no reasons that were noted to us, uh, we asked the folks that take our survey, they're referred to as panel members. And when we ask the panel members, uh, we ask them the same set of questions from year to year. On the 1031 tax exchange, uh, that's if you're trying to sell a parcel land buy another parcel somewhere else, a like-kind like exchange, that was one of the top reasons, uh, alternative investments, interest rates were positive, not extremely positive, but they were positive. Some things that stood out though, uh, future property tax policies. There's a lot of um, negativity associated with panel members that took this question. Property tax levels, um, current uh, crop prices, farm input costs, things of that nature. I'll ask stress on farm finances. If you have a tenant that's not doing quite as well as financially as they had hoped, it's probably gonna weigh down on farm finances. And if that will weigh down on farm finances enough, we might see um, land values decline to an extent. I will say if you compare this image to 2019, it is slightly more positive, keeping in mind the period when this was surveyed, it's slightly more positive than the prior years was. All right, a little bit on cash rental rates. So the way we take a look at it, uh, I'll briefly talk on the percent change, and then I'm gonna talk a little bit more on the range with respects to cash rents. When it comes to cash rental rates, we noted a slight increase across the state with some areas having a slight decline. I would not get so intertwined in what percent change it was, but what are the bigger trends you're seeing? A few things that were noted. When it came to uh, folks taking this survey, especially related to crop production, in 2019, we had the start of disruptions in a lot of the commodities, uh, the prices for a lot of our commodities with respects to trade. Well, when it comes to trade, uh, we had the marketing facilitation payments, which in the state of Nebraska were not quite, but they almost approached a billion dollars. Uh, they were paid out over three times, um, one payment that was paid out in installments. That was one reason noted that the farm finances, some of the financial losses or some of the financial downturn because of depressed commodity prices was at least in portion offset by some of these payments. So that's maybe why we've seen cash rental rates slightly increase or a little bit better than we had anticipated. Uh, the range that we've seen for cash rental rates are displayed here across the state of Nebraska. Now, we don't provide summaries by the county level, but we do give a range on the cash rental rates by region of the state. When we look at the regions of the states, uh, we can see a little bit of a difference. And you have, if you think about geography, uh, the geography of the state, there are some areas where cash rental rates are a little bit higher, uh, maybe you're in a county where the soil type's a little bit better, maybe it's not sloped quite as much, and there's other areas where it might be down a little bit, and um, so on and so forth. So we're seeing quite the spread of cash rental rates. Uh, I would encourage you, if you are in an operator or a landlord in one of these areas, think about um, 
what potential does your property have in terms of yields relative to the region? Are you on the upper side, lower side, or somewhere in between? So those are some of the factors we need to think about. A little bit on irrigated cash rental rates. With respects to the irrigated cash rental rates for 2020, these rates assume that the landowner, the landowner entity, owns the pivot, the pump, the power unit, and obviously the land that goes with it. If you have a tenant that is providing one of those components, pivot, pump, power unit, uh, primarily you'd see a tenant bring along a power unit or possibly a pivot, or maybe they even own the pump, who knows. You would probably adjust uh, the cash rental rate down to account for that. So in addition to the range that we've seen on cash rental rates, uh, we can go from the low 300s in the eastern part of the state to about 100 in the low third in the western part of the state. Thing I forgot to mention on the prior slide, we have an average of the high, high third. So we asked the question, what do the folks that take the survey, what do you estimate the high third is on cash rents? What do you estimate the low third is on cash rents? And what would you estimate the average to be for the entire area, factoring in low and high? So that's what's meant by the HAL or the average of the high third, average of low third, and average of all the responses. Okay. All right. A little bit here when it comes to uh, renting pasture. Two ways to rent pasture in the state of Nebraska. And at the end of the day, you're either writing a check out or you're accepting a check for the total sum, but uh, you can rent by the acre or you can rent by the pair. And then when it comes to renting by the acre or the pair, uh, we noted a fairly strong trend across the state to being up slightly. Um, things on, I will challenge folks that are renting, whether a landlord or a tenant, what degree of services are the landlord or the tenant providing to the lease when it comes to the grazing land? Common features associated with the grazing land include things like um, fencing, uh, water supply, weed control, brush control, all these things. You have a tenant that's willing to maintain the fence. You have a tenant that's willing to, maybe they don't pay for the materials, but they are willing to uh, do the work of drilling the post holes, putting them in, stringing the wire. All these things are valuable to each party. You have a landlord that's maybe semi-retired, but due to their health, they don't necessarily have livestock anymore, but they're willing to do some of these things, especially to a tenant that lives a long ways away. See a lot of people down in the Platte area uh, taking cattle out to the sandhills. Our average age of the ranching population is a little bit higher than the farming population is. And that being said, we do see some folks take cattle in out in that area. If that's the case, uh, maybe they're willing to pay a rental rate that's commensurate of the landlord providing some of these services I mentioned. Uh, range on the pasture rental rates, once again, relates to the quality of the land you have, what kind of stocking rates, how big of a parcel. Uh, if you have a parcel that you can run nine pairs on versus 90 pairs, the larger parcel might be more desirable because if I have 90 cows, I don't want to have to take cows to multiple sites. I try to keep together an appropriate number that makes sense. So that's one of those things you have to kind of think about with respects to um, some of those things.
Okay, uh, the other way to rent um, grazing land, we can talk about renting grazing land on a per pair basis. So this is one cow, one calf for the summer grazing season. And when it comes to renting uh, cow-calf pairs on a monthly basis, uh, we see a range around, even in the area of the state you're in, that $50 on the eastern part to the low to mid-30s on the western part. So if you're renting, say you're in an area, the going rate is $50 a month, you rent it for five months, five times 50 is 250. So that'd be $250 for one cow, one calf for the summer grazing season. And once again, when it comes to cash rents, uh, think about the factors that influence them. Uh, who's doing what when it comes to those services, okay? All right, that takes a few minutes here and talk about some trends that we're seeing in our leases across the state of Nebraska. There's some very interesting trends to be noted. And that being said, uh, I wanna highlight some of these. A few things on estimating cash rents. If you're in a situation that you agreed to a cash rent in 2020, but the landlord then need to readjust it given that we've seen some declines in the commodity prices, whatever. I have a couple different ways to estimate cash rents. Uh, first idea, if you know what the regional rental rate is for in an area on a per acre basis, so you look at University of Nebraska, you identify it from another report, there's additional information out there. Wherever you identify it from, uh, say you might also identify what the regional corn yield is be able to find this through a crop insurance agent or someone that has knowledge on the area. If you divide the average uh, rental rate per acre divided by the average county corn yield, you get what is referred to as the county rent per bushel. This says for, in this made up example, every bushel of corn raised is $1.13 a bushel on, um, uh, for every bushel of corn produced on this rented ground, costs $1.13 of the sales price going towards the rent. But on the property you rent is less than the county average. It's not 120 bushel, it's actually 105 bushel. If that's the case, you take the county rent per bushel and multiply it by the average yield for the farm that you're renting. You adjust the county rental rate down to the farm level rental rate. This is an example where the ground may not be quite as good as a county yield is. If that's the case, you would charge a rental rate lower because you don't have as the potential for quite as good of a yield. Maybe it's sandier ground, whatever the case is. Next example, uh, cash equivalent from crop share. In this case, I got uh, two scenarios set up here. Say I'm on a 50-50 lease split. As part of this split, landlord gets half the yield, and it gets half the yield. This is a very good example, I think. Uh, back in March, the middle column we have right there, say this ground was capable of producing uh, 160 bushel, the landlord gets half, the tenant gets half. If that's the case, we take the average yield times by 50%, so the landlord gets 80 bushel per acre. And then if you multiply that by uh, $3.50, which you know when leases were signed, maybe the expectation for prices was a little bit better. So on a per acre basis, as part of a share, the landlord's taking home about 280. 
Don't forget if you're on a 50-50 lease split as part of a crop share, you're probably gonna see a landlord maybe paying half of the seed, fertilizer, and chemical. Take away the landlord share of the income minus the landlord share of expenses. The difference between those two, those represent in effect what the landlord's gonna make. Now, they obviously still have to pay property taxes or any other land ownership expenses from it. But the thing to note there is, uh, even if you're accepting cash rent, you still have to pay those expenses. But if I signed a 50-50 crop share lease split with the income and expenses, I anticipate I might make about 125 bucks an acre. We roll forward to say this month, I uh, was looking at some prices yesterday. I just picked a 310 a bushel. Prices are, you know, 30, 40, 50 cents lower than what you had initially anticipated for this fall. Uh, that means our income per acre is less. While, you know, it doesn't matter necessarily what your income per acre is, you have certain expenses associated with raising crops when you buy the seed, when you spray it, whatever, fertilizer, you paid for those things. Those expenses are kind of locked down for that season. So in this example, we're kind of trying to take um, situation we had in the spring and compare it to a situation we have now. We're trying to adjust the rent. If I'm a landlord or if I'm a tenant trying to uh, justify my cash rent to a landlord, this is one way to give some ideas and to say, hey, maybe we need to be talking 20, 30 bucks an acre lower in cash rent because it's not equitable given where current income is sitting at. Remember, landowners are facing challenges, tenants are as well. Landowners pay highest property taxes, tenants also face um, depressed commodity prices for many of the common crops they grow across the state. So the other thing to point out, if you really are struggling on setting the cash rent, ask your landlord, what would you anticipate making if we were on a cash rent? Instead of doing a cash rent, we're doing a crop share. This is a really good example to break that down. Uh, another example, return on investment. You got the gross rate of return on two different types of land here. And when I say gross rate of return, remember the gross rate of return does not necessarily reflect um, land ownership expenses, which the primary one being property tax. You have the value of your asset, you multiply it by your rate of return, the return is an estimated rental rate. You have to be very careful on the rate of return and the value you pick for this. If you pick too big of a value for either one, the cash rents aren't going to be representative. This is kind of a number that if you're really a financial person or maybe a banker, they might be a little bit more aware of these kind of things. Okay, another question I, I get at least once a month right now, in addition to many of our um, agricultural specialists across the state with UNL. Let's say I got a case Web it to the site. Uh, maybe you have an older landowner that says, I don't, doesn't make sense for me at my point in life to buy another pivot, or maybe they can't financially make it work given the situation, whatever the case is. And you have a tenant, maybe they put a new pivot out on their personal ground, but they put another pivot, take their old unit, which isn't completely wore out, and move it onto the rented ground. <laughs> if you do that, um, we asked this question as part of our 2018 survey. And if you do that, take note here, um, we would adjust the cash rental rate down because if you have someone bring a pivot, they don't have to pay for things like the depreciation, upkeep, 
Um, also, uh, possibly taxes or insurance. So you would take off, we estimated about six, not quite 60% of the time, the discount, the amount you would take off the cash rent, say the cash rent's 275 an acre and you take off $30 an acre because the tenant's providing the pivot. If that's the case, you might have an effective cash rent of around 245 or so. Also, we know it discounts a third of the time around 10 to 25, and then less than 10% of the time, it's greater than 51. You know, at a very small percent, there was no adjustment made. Another question that we get is when it comes to a case if a tenant brings a power unit, most common types of power units, diesel engine, propane, natural gas engine, or even electric motor. This one's probably more common than the pivot one is. If you see a tenant bring, uh, they say, I'll bring my diesel engine along if you rent your property to me. If that's the case, um, we give a breakdown in the four columns on the right-hand side of the slide to show an example on a diesel engine. About 34% um, of the time, you take off somewhere between nine to 10, or one to $9 an acre. About another third of the time, you take off a discount of 10 to 20. The tenants providing the diesel engine, we get a lot of reports coming in. Some people might take off 10, 12 bucks an acre, and that's kind of verified by some of our results. The other thing on uh, the diesel engines, some of the newer diesel engines used on irrigation sites, uh, they have emission controls of various kinds on them, and discount might actually be in the higher end because of uh, high depth systems for emission controls make the engines cost more. So your discount breaker might be slightly higher than. All right, another question we asked from our survey responses. On the survey response, uh, whether 2019 leases had provisions in them to account for damages, and when I say to, from damages, I'm talking about things like extensive prevent plant, meaning you can't prop, plant the crop in a proper time that would account for, um, how should I say, uh, being able to plant the crop in an expedited manner that's appropriate for your crop insurance policy. If that was the case, um, we got about 70% of the time, we had folks that, um, didn't necessarily have the best provisions in place. Part of the time we got partially and the remainder of the time we did have folks that take the, took this in. So those until we get done and then uh, Ryan will help kind of facilitate some of these as we're going through. Big take home on this slide, prevent plant is typically something that we don't see to the degree that you might see in our neighbors to the north of us. That's probably one reason such extensive prevent plant provisions in many of our leases we see in the state. Uh, when it comes to when it comes to the crop, um, let's see it here. All right, next question. For those folks that did experience prevent plant, at about 400,000 acres in the state of Nebraska that had prevent plant, when it came to prevent plant to the cash rental race in 2019, what we found about a third of the time, no adjustments were made. 
not quite 40% of the time, rent was reduced. We didn't ask how much. They just checked the option, rent was reduced. No rent. And then 14% uh, of the time, some other, something else was done. Didn't get into that detail. I can't provide any other comments on that. But there was something that was done differently. And when it comes to, we didn't specify exactly what that meant. And there are, were reports coming in. There were some people, you know, the ground was just too wet to farm and you eventually put a cover crop in in late summer. There are other cases where we had uh, um, deposits of debris, uh, branches, sand, you know, very heavy determinants that you, you can't plant. Really varied across the state. On average, we had 400, just a little over 400,000. If you look over the last decade, our numbers are considerably lower. And I think 20, I believe, if I'm mistaken, it was 2015 or one of those years around that year, had a little bit more, a um, little bit more uh, prevent plant. So, but it does occur across our state. And the last kind of question on the special feature section we took was provisions, was, was, was something different done compared to 2019 to account for flooding? About uh, half of the leases, they didn't make too much of a change. About a third of them, they did partially did some kind of adjustment to the lease to account for excessive flooding. And a little over 10% of the time, folks really did take a closer look at adjusting their leases to account for flood damages. When it came to that prior slide on reduced rent, what was meant by that? Uh, reports coming into us indicated there were certain individuals. Let's say you had a property that um, Maybe there was some debris washed onto it. Maybe there was some uh, ground that washed, not extensively, but something that you could do with a box blade or a small earth mover and a tractor. Some folks own that kind of stuff. Uh, some folks counted the land tenant if they're willing to do remediation work. Uh, I'm not talking if you know if you have 10 inches of sand across the entire parcel. That's a little bit different deal, but. Minor things, you know, things are hand intensive, uh, labor intensive. You got to drive around with a four wheeler and pick up debris and throw it in a trailer or something. Some of these things, some of that could be counted in lieu of the cash rent because it's providing what value to the landlord if you have a tenant that's willing to help remediate some of those issues. Final piece here uh, in the state of Nebraska. If you do not have a lease in writing, we always highly encourage everyone to, for the protection of the land tenant and the landlord. If something happens to one of those parties, how do you accommodate that? Well, when it comes to that and somebody else would have to step in to finish out that lease, the best thing to do is to have that lease in writing. And in the state of Nebraska, if you have a verbal lease, you need to terminate that verbal lease before you go to a written one. Critical date in this state is prior to September 1st, we need to give a termination notice to our land lord or our land tenant to let them know that we want to terminate the verbal lease because if we don't give at least six months notice on cropland leases, whatever terms we had with our verbal lease 
move forward to for the following year. Great website to check out is agleese101.org. On that website, you can download a free fill in the form PDF lease. The other thing, if you like what you're seeing today, uh, do a Google search or our internet search for Ag Land Management Quarterly. As part of this um, uh, presentation, we do a uh, presentation, pretty short, one hour, Alan Vidalik and myself. Uh, we'll be a little bit over repeat from what I talked about today, but uh, Alan will give uh, more details on lease, critical lease provisions given the time of the year. And also we take uh, Q&A for different questions. So with that, I think I got a couple of questions that got emailed in as well as questions that came in. So um, let's see here. A uh, few questions. First one, uh, how do land values and cash rental rates relate? Typically cash rental rates are a little bit more responsive to commodity prices. When it comes to um, land values, those tend to change and not necessarily quite as fast as cash rents do. Those are a little more sticky than what um, cash rents might be. So that was one question that came in. Another question that came in related to damages. Uh, we had an individual indicate that, um, go back a few slides here if I can. When it comes to damages, uh, this individual indicated that they had a parcel of ground, it was in corn, related to that corn ground, um, there was an area along a river or stream where they had wildlife that destroyed, say, five acres of the crop. How do you account for that in the lease? And they had said that what they did at the end of the year is they sized up how many acres had been exposed to that, you know, half the yield that they would usually have. And they set a different rental rate on that, but they kind of wanted to keep one rental rate across the property. Well, the best way to look at it is if you do have a property that is damaged uh, just for one particular area, you know, when it comes to the end of the year, if you got a person that's got a combine that can have a yield map or clearly you can identify even visually that there were damages, trying to draw those elements separate from um, the other uh, parcel of ground is a good way to kind of account for that. So, okay, Ryan, did you have some other questions? Uh, yeah, a couple more that came in. One was in reference to um, your slide number 19, I believe it is, Jim, the tornado graph where the panel rated the factors influencing ag land values. Um, just the question of, you mentioned 2020 responses being slightly more positive than last year. Uh, does anything come to mind in terms of details of what people were more positive about or less negative about this year? When I said they were more positive, the thing that I noted was we had more blue lines on the right-hand side of the tornado graph than we did on the left-hand side. The factors, you know, 1031 exchange, interest rates, federal farm programs, those are typically positive or they're, if they're negative, they're not very negative. I will say these top five negative forces tended to stay the same. So property tax policies, current crop prices, farm input costs, property tax levels. Those in years when prices are really good, uh, 12, 13, 14, some of the 2000s, we seen current crop prices and livestock prices were a negative or a positive force. My guess is, is if we uh, pulled today the same question, 
they may not be quite as positive uh, based on the folks that took our survey, but uh, that's kind of what stuck out, Brian. Great, and uh, one more so far, asking about um, what the influences of purchases of ag land for future development near urban areas like Lincoln and Omaha might have on reported ag land values. So a uh, few things, we, uh, when I, we get our actual ag land sales reported to us, it's, you know, it's not perfectly true, but obviously sales occurring in Douglas, RP, Lancaster, Hall, a handful of other ones that if you see an exceptionally priced sale that comes in, uh, we tend to sort them out because we're trying to really focus on ag land. Now, I'm not saying they don't get into the averages, but we try to distinguish one from the other one because it's when you have a development potential you know, maybe it's 10 years, five years, whatever the case is, the highest and best use at one point in time is different than the highest and best use. And the ag land, if it's gonna be made into housing development, say the next three to five years, the interim use may be just simply planting into corn or alfalfa or something until then. So we're trying to kind of keep those two apart from each other. Great. Uh, a couple more coming in through the chat here, Jim. Um, one just a specific question on when pasture rate is stated on the graph or on the report as dollars per acre, um, just a question that that in fact means dollars per acre times the number of acres then would equal the annual rent payment. Let me move down here. Okay, so I think we're talking in reference to something like this or if we get the range here. So this is for one acre and um, if you have say 80 acres, you would times that number by 80. Uh, the thing that's tough when it comes to the per acre averages is there's a great degree of variation, especially on grazing land across the state. So some of the lower rates you might see in certain areas would reflect um, a lower stocking rate or some attribute that isn't um, nearly as desirable to have because it takes more um, acres for the cow-calf pair than it would in other areas, say an area uh, might have a parcel of ground that's too wet to farm, so it's a lower stocking rate. But uh, that is, you can figure it by the acre or you can figure it by the pair and the numbers we have reported here as noted in the, in the chart title, that's on a monthly rate. Great, and then one question about the full ag lease forms. Jim, if you can go back to that slide at the end, perhaps we'll just display that information one more time. I believe it was aglease101.org yep. was a site there. And also a question about whether or not um, some of the charts can be downloaded. We will make these slides as well as the recording of this video available. It should be up by yep. tomorrow at noon at farm.unl.edu. So you'll be able to uh, work with what Jim's presenting today. Uh, another one that came in here, Jim, in some of your examples, you were using an example of cash market price. So just a question of where or how do you figure additional government as income assistance that the producer might be getting for the farm and production? Uh, sure. Before I answer that question, Ryan, the other thing I want to note, I notice I always go through these slides twice and I notice I might have been off on a slide or two in terms of my title label or even I think the one slide I need to take a double check the values on there. I will correct those in the final version that gets posted and Ryan might be able to uh, insert that file into the recording possibly as well. 
When it comes to uh, government payments, we're talking about government disaster payments, uh, things like uh, marketing facilitation payment, uh, coronavirus food assistance program, CFAP, ARC, PLC, there's a host of other ones. Why do we get those? The reason we're getting them is farm finances, the prices that folks are receiving, the yields, drought, uh, all these things are adversely affecting ag producers. The people that get to receive these payments are those engaged in production risk. And what is meant by that is those folks that are participating in a crop share are sharing in the production risk. So if you're on a um, crop share, you can, um, uh, I gotta think this through. If you're on a crop share, if you're on a 50-50 split, you would get 50% of the payment. If you're on a cash lease, that's something that has to be negotiated in because these payments are not dollar for dollar for every loss that comes. I would tell you, um, if you're interested in getting the payments, to be sure to participate in a crop share. But the reason we're getting payments, things are not good. And if they're not good, the, the adverse uh, payments are being made are being made because they're trying to help offset some of the losses that producers may be seeing. Okay, anything else, Ryan, or is that wrapper up? Time, time for one more question here. Um, do you have percentage info on pasture leases as to the landowner versus the tenant bearing the cost of weed control? Uh, simple answer to that is no. I will say when it comes to uh, certain chemicals used on pastures are referred to as restricted use pesticides. So unless you have the license or permit to purchase them, you may not be able to acquire them necessarily as a landlord. Uh, the thing I would challenge you is what kind of issues do you have on your grazing land? If you have a case where there's significant weed infestations, well, if you're renting that to a new party, you're probably going to have to take some off the cash rent. If I rent Ryan's ground and there's a lot of thistles and weeds and brush that I know I'm going to have to control through some means, you probably want to add charge a lower cash rent. Now, if you have a retired landowner that's acquiring the spray and spraying everything, they just take care of it, that'd probably be a talking point that you might be a little bit more on the upper cash rent side. Uh, completely um, kind of varies based on where you're at in the state, I guess. but. Uh, um, I think that's the best answer I got for you on, on that one, Ryan. Okay, well, um, we're at our hour, and if people have other questions, uh, Jim, if you can put up your contact slide again, I think you had one in there. Of course, you're always available to answer questions by email or phone. And again, we will have this presentation and Jim's slides up on our website by tomorrow, farm.unl.edu. So thank you, Jim, and thanks to everybody for joining us today. And as a reminder, do check farm.unl.edu for a schedule of more webinars centered around farm and ranch management. This has been a special Nebraska Farmcast presentation of Extension Farm and Ranch Management in the Department of Agricultural Economics at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. To view or listen to more archived webinars, register for upcoming sessions, and discover more timely news, analysis, decision tools, and publications to guide your decision-making, visit farm.unl.edu.